James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, College Park. Again, first off, I really do want to say thank you for uh, allowing me to speak today, uh, again, and for supporting the resident program. Again, this past year for Jessica and I have just been just a wonderful year, a blessing to us, and it's just been a joy to serve alongside you. So before we go to your word today, let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much that we get to open your word today and we get to hear from you. Father God, remove any distractions from our minds, any distractions from our hearts, so that we might be able to hear from you. God, we love you, and we devote this time to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as Joe said, I am in the soul care ministry, and part of that role means that I'm going to be tra- I train and equip you in order to care for one another um, when they're suffering or when there's trials. Now, much of that training and equipping and um, caring for one another is to teaching you what to say when someone's struggling with a trial. You know, where to find hope in Scripture and how the gospel speaks to every, every circumstance. But on the other hand, another part of this training is teaching you what not to say to somebody who is suffering or struggling with a trial. So, for example, here are some very unhelpful phrases that we would advise you to avoid when caring for a friend in need. You know, it could be worse. (laughs) You're still dealing with that? I know exactly how you feel. You know, I'm sure you'll get over it. You know, once you just give that to the Lord, then he'll take care of it. Now, we may chuckle a little bit because maybe at some point we have been the recipients of these type of phrases in times of trial, or maybe we ourselves, albeit with very, very good intentions, have maybe said the wrong thing at the wrong time. As we look to our passage today, we come across an exhortation from James that on the surface seems like it could be numbered among these phrases to avoid. So first, give you some quick context. The author of this letter is James, the brother of Jesus, and he is writing to early first century Jewish Christians. These Jewish converts to Christianity were facing trials and difficulties of various kinds because they had been forced out or dispersed from their home in Jerusalem because of the threat 
of persecution. And after a brief introduction, James opens up with this imperative. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, now wait a minute here, James. That's, that's how you're going to open your letter? You know, it seems a little insensitive, doesn't it? You know, hey, brothers, you know those trials that you're dealing with? Hey, just count them as joy. Just put on a happy face. But actually, as we unpack this passage, we'll see that James is not advocating for a conceal, don't feel approach to trials, but rather he's pointing us to the one thing that can sustain us when we come face to face with all sorts of trials and concerns. James isn't telling us to ignore our pain, but instead he is calling us to remember the joy that we already possess. A joy that no earthly power or circumstance can ever touch. A complete joy. A joy that does not come from human will or emotion, but is a gift that is given to us by God. Now you may be thinking, yeah, I'd love to consider you know, my trials as joy, or you know, after another year of being married passes by, or another month of not being pregnant, or another job application I have to fill out. But that just doesn't seem realistic to me. And even if I tried, wouldn't it just be fake? Wouldn't it be just fake joy? James, if you knew what I was going through, you wouldn't ask me to count it as joy. So then we have to ask, is the Apostle James out of touch with reality? Is James just giving us another secular feel-good phrase? Or is what he commands actually possible, even in the darkest of trials? Now, if James is serious, and this command is actually from God, then we need to ask ourselves, do we possess this type of joy? And do we even have a category in our minds to count trials as joy? And do we have the eyes to see that when a trial comes into our life, that it might be an opportunity for joy? So today, as we look at our passage, James 1, 1 through 12, we are going to see that counting trials as joy is actually possible. But there are certain things that need to be true of us if we are going to draw upon this joy that James describes here. So in the time we have today, we are going to unpack six qualities that are true of people who can count trials as joy. The first, people who count trials as joy possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now look at these verses. Um, we can see that James is not commanding everyone everywhere to count their trials as joy, but he's addressing a particular people with a particular faith. James knows that counting trials as joy, as he understands it, is this not a skill that you pick up, you know, from the latest self-help book? or something that is passed down from generation to generation, but rather this joy is a gift from God to those who possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now where do we see this? Now first, we see it in the way James introduces himself. In verse 1, James declares his own faith when he identifies himself as a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know, this is a really, really incredible, incredible statement, incredible declaration. Because in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, 
We see that Jesus' brothers weren't fully convinced that he was the Messiah through much of his earthly ministry. And you can imagine how it might be hard to have a brother who is the sinless son of God kind of grown up with. But nevertheless, James here declares that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a powerful declaration testifying to the authority that Jesus had over his life. And this is our first clue in understanding what kind of people can count trials as joy. They are self-proclaimed servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, we see this prerequisite for joy in the way James addresses his audience. We see him addressing this letter to the 12 tribes, which uh, is a name that alludes to his audience's Jewish heritage, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then later in verse 2 and in verse 16 and throughout this whole letter, James addresses them as my brothers or my beloved brothers and sisters who possess a faith that is going to be tested. The language James uses here is not just like a mere term of endearment, but he identifies the recipients of his letter as members of his family. Not of physical descent, but of spiritual descent, united together through their shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. James and his audience both have a faith that Jesus Christ has saved their souls and therefore have a foundation from which this joy in trials can actually be experienced. A joy that is not inherently found in themselves, but has been given to them the moment they first believed. You think about it, counting trials as joy really makes no earthly sense unless you have a faith that is stronger, that is more deep than the things that you're dealing with at the present moment. That this faith is, that this faith is the deepest truth about you and not the trials you're experiencing. Now this foundation of faith is not a naive faith or a faith that seeks to escape reality, but rather a faith that is rooted in history. It's a faith that believes that all the scriptures say are true. And that God, who created the universe by the word of his mouth, left his throne in heaven and came in the likeness of men to redeem a world that was broken. A faith that believes Jesus was truly God-made flesh, truly born of a virgin, and lived a perfect and sinless life. And instead of being exalted on this earth as he deserved, instead he went to a cross and was crucified by the ones he came to save. But we know that on the third day, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, declaring victory over death, sin, and the devil, now lives and reigns, and is one day coming back to finish what he started. And because this Jesus continues to reign, those who put their faith in him and count it as an honor to be his servants possess a joy that no earthly trial or circumstance can ever remove. Why can no earthly power remove this joy? Because the greatest threat to our joy, that being death, has been defeated by King Jesus. And if you want to count trials as joy today, you must be first be counted as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to be part of his family. Yet while I know many of us believe this to be true, it's often difficult to remember this good news, especially when we're faced with trials of various kinds. We always need to be reminded again and again about God and his good purposes. This brings us to our second point. 
So people who count trials as joy, first, possess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and second, they know that their trials are not meaningless. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So James appeals to his audience here that they are able to count trials as joy because they know something. Well, what, what do these people know? They know that through the testing of their faith, God is producing a spiritual steadfastness, like a spiritual endurance that is necessary to keep them faithful to the end. So my wife and I, we made uh, a really big decision this year. Something neither of us had ever, ever done before. Took a lot of conversations, a lot of going back and forth, maybe even some sleepless nights. But we finally agreed that we were going to buy a gym membership. <laughs> yes, I said it, a gym membership. Now, why in the world would we do such a thing? Well, we have bought into the science that exercise is good for you. That if we subject our bodies to long periods of physical activity, that we will be better for it. We trust that if we work out, we will sleep better, that we'll feel better, and have more energy throughout the day. So we tolerate the inconvenient five-minute drive to Planet Fitness uh, and the hour of hard work and the monthly fee because we believe that our exercise is not meaningless. We believe that the exercise is producing an endurance that will one day pay us great dividends. Now, we may not see the results after, after one hour, but we're hoping, if we remain faithful, that we might have those really cool before and after pictures. And similarly, Christians are able to count trials as joy because they trust that what they're going through is not arbitrary. They trust that what God says is actually true. That through the testing of their faith, he is producing a steadfastness that is molding, that is shaping them into the people that God desires them to be. They believe that God's purposes are good and that they are necessary to keep them believing to the end. Now, I know many of you may be asking, yeah, I've heard God has a purpose. Yeah, I've heard all things work together for good. But how can what I'm going through truly be worth it? How can I be sure God's purposes are good, especially when the grief and the pain are so great? Do I just have to have faith that his purposes are good, even though all the earthly evidence points us in a different direction? Now, I do believe God calls us to trust, even in the worst of trials. But I don't think he's asking us for blind trust. And I don't think James here is asking his audience for blind trust either. But rather, James wants them to draw upon the knowledge that they already possess that proclaims that God's infinite goodness towards his people, even in the midst of trials. If you would, turn your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And as you turn there, I want to remind you of who James is writing to. He's writing to Jewish converts, and these people knew their Old Testaments. So when James says, for you know... I believe he is rooting his call to count trials as joy in the evidence of God's faithfulness to his people throughout history, a history that his audience knows very well. James wants them to look back and look at all the history of the Jewish people and notice 
that God never puts his people through trials arbitrarily, but is teaching them how to persevere to the end. So Deuteronomy 8, and we'll start in verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God had to lead you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we see here in this passage that Moses is reminding God's people that the 40 years of testing in the wilderness, the 40 years of wandering, was not meaningless. It was not arbitrary. But for the purpose that they might learn to trust, not in their circumstances or the things they saw or the things they touched, but only in the words that came from the mouth of the Lord. His words had the ultimate authority. Every day the Israelites wandered in the desert. They had to trust God for their next meal. Every day their faith was tested, and every day the Lord provided. And if we are going to count trials as joy, we have to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness, not only in our lives, but all throughout history to God's people. And ultimately, we need to look back to Jesus. We need to look forward to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, is now seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ himself endured the greatest trial, the greatest suffering, so that no trial a Christian faces in faith is ever meaningless. Number three, people who count trials as joy, they allow God's work to be completed. So turn back to me with, with James, to James chapter one. Look at verses three and four again. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now what in the world does it mean to let steadfastness have its full effect? I think James here is addressing the manner or the attitude in which we endure trials. He tells us that, if we, that we must desire the testing's intended effects to one day be made perfectly holy and complete, lacking in nothing. Because it's one thing to intellectually know what God is doing, you know, to know all the right answers, to know the right verses, but it's another thing to, complete, to cooperate with God as he conforms us to the image of his son. You have the option, am I going to resent the testing that's coming my way, or am I going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and work alongside him as he's making me ready for eternity? One commentator describes uh, God's testing like taking a torch, like the ones in Indiana Jones, and taking this torch and lowering it down into the inward parts of your character. And when it was lowered down into the caverns of your soul, you may, fi- you may find weak faith where you thought it was strong, and sin that you thought dead rears its ugly face in its shadows. For many of us, our torch of testing might be our marriage. It might be a new roommate. It might be a new job or a new place or a new city. Each of these things acts like a torch, revealing sin we didn't know existed and exposing weak faith 
where we thought it was strong. So then the question is, how will you respond when God allows a torch of testing in your life? Will you rejoice that God is exposing sin, knowing that he's making you into his image and not to condemn you, but to strengthen you and to make you more complete? Or will you put all your effort into running away, trying to pretend that nothing's happening, to trying to pretend that the trial isn't real or that the trial is revealing a heart that may be very far from the Lord? Now, this doesn't mean that we run towards trials or we start to compare trials to, to each other or how many trials each other have. But rather, when God allows them to come into our lives, we need to bear up under them and trust that the Lord is slowly but surely, surely refining our character until the last day when we are finally made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christians can have joy in trials not because the trials in themselves are the source of joy, but because they know the trials are a part of a bigger truth, a bigger story, a deeper truth than the one they are experiencing. The truth that ever since God's perfect people were kicked out of God's perfect garden, God was preparing a way to bring them back again. And ever since the fall, God has been orchestrating a work of redemption in his people, he has given them new hearts so that he might conform them back into the image that they were created to look like. And that one day, God's people might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, just as it was in the garden. So people who count trials as joy, they possess a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They know their trials are not meaningless. They allow God's work to be completed. And fourth, People who count trials as joy ask God for wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James here understands that when we're faced with various trials, we often are met with situations where we just have no idea what to do. We are faced with questions like, Lord, do I stay at a job I'm miserable at, or do I look elsewhere? Do I take this treatment, or do I opt for surgery? How do I explain this to my children? How much longer should we wait? What in the world do I say? And there often really isn't clear answers. Um, and the Bible doesn't have a question and answer section for every individual trial. But what the Bible does tell us is that God knows, that God has the answers, and that he is ready and willing to grant us all the wisdom we need in our times of trial. The person who can count trials as joys knows they don't have all the answers. Yet in their moment of uncertainty, they don't act out of fear from their circumstances, but they act out of fear of the Lord, knowing that God will give them wisdom without reproach in accord with his good and his perfect will. And when we approach our Father in prayer, he does not laugh at us because of our need, nor does he grow weary of our asking for continual wisdom, but instead he responds with graciousness and kindness 
And just as a good earthly father loves to hear from his children, so too does our heavenly father love to hear his children ask and is ready without hesitation to pour out wisdom in our time of need. Even though we know this about God, we often don't ask. I know speaking personally, I find it most difficult to go to the Lord in prayer uh, when the trials are hard and when I need him most. I know there's been even times in this past year where I've neglected to go to the Lord in prayer, not because I didn't believe that he wanted to hear me or um, that he wouldn't answer me or that he didn't want to hear, but rather, um, I just think it was hard because it's really hard to verbalize or audibly hear yourself uh, talk about a trial and to admit that life's really hard and you just don't have all the answers. The Lord crushed me of that pride, and I confessed that to him, and I finally asked the Lord for help. And he reminded me of his goodness and his mercy during my time of trial, yet even though he didn't change my circumstances. So then, church, when you lack wisdom, which is all the time, <laughs> ask God, because he, is, he gives graciously without reproach. Yet as we read further, James tells us that the Lord not only cares that we pray, but he also cares about the attitude in which we pray. We either can come to God and ask in faith, or we can come to God and ask in doubt. And if we come to the Lord asking in doubt, he tells us that we can expect to receive nothing from him. So that begs the question, how can we know if we're asking in faith? And how can we know if we're asking in doubt? Now, I don't think there's a, a really clear cut, you know, hey, if you're doing this, you're in faith. If you do this, you're in doubt. Um, I wish I could give you a hard and fast line, but I don't think there is. Uh, but instead, I'm going to give you some questions to think about that I hope will help you evaluate whether your prayers are genuinely asked in faith or not. When you pray, do you truly see your need for God's help or do you pray because that's just what you're supposed to do? When you pray, do you ask for your will to be done? Or do you ask for God's will to be done? When God doesn't answer the way you desire, do you respond in anger? Or do you respond with more prayer? Do you confess sin when you pray? Or do you just ask for things? Do you appeal to the goodness of God in your prayers? Or to the fairness you think you deserve? Are you willing to compromise your conscience or commandment from Scripture if God doesn't give you the thing that you want? Do people describe you as a worrywart, somebody who's worrying all the time, or consistently anxious? And when you feel yourself doubting, do you bring that doubt to the Lord, or do you just stop praying? These questions, again, are not all the questions you could ask, but I hope that you can see that there is a really close connection between your prayer life and the ability to count trials as joy. And if your prayers are so plagued with doubt, so much so that you begin to look outside of Scripture for wisdom, then you might be counted as a double-minded person, unstable in all your ways. People who count trials as joy are constantly asking the Lord for wisdom, believing not only in His ability to grant your requests, but also in his ability to answer in harmony with his character and purpose. While on the other hand, 
those who doubt God's goodness live in such a way that they are like a little rowboat, which is right in the middle of the ocean, being tossed and driven by the sea without an anchor, because they have been wooed by a voice that is not from their maker. Fifth, people who count trials as joy boast in a future glory rather than a present glory. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now this seems like a really kind of odd section, transition from prayer and trials. But James is actually giving those in the midst of trials a reminder to take comfort in the things that will truly last. The things that the world cannot take away. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Kind of give you some context too. In the first century, much like today, people segregated themselves and socialized with people that looked like they looked and lived like they lived. The Jews with the Jews, the Gentiles with the Gentiles, the Samaritans with the Samaritans. The rich hung out with the rich, and the poor hung out with the poor. But when Jesus came and preached a gospel, a good, the good news of the gospel, a gospel that transcended gender, race, economic status, those who believed, both rich and poor, both Jew and Gentile, began to gather together and fellowship with one another, united under their common faith in Jesus Christ. So when persecution and trials tested the faith of this very diverse group of people called the church, they had to decide, are we going to comfort ourselves with what we used to comfort in, namely our status or our possessions, or are we going to take comfort in these new promises of Jesus, the promises of life with Jesus? James, knowing these struggles, exhorts them that in order to find lasting joy in trials, they must boast and take comfort in the beauty that never perishes. At the beginning of verse 9, we see James first address a lowly brother and exhorts him, hey, boast in your, exhort, your exaltation. Now this Christian brother is probably called lowly, not because he's short, um, but in the eyes of the world, he probably has very little significance. You know, he is someone who isn't going to further your status. You know, if he retweets your tweet, you're not going to get a bump in followers if you follow this guy. But now you may ask, you know, why would anyone feel tempted to boast in the temporary things, in, uh, in their present glory, if he's got nothing of earthly value to boast in? You know, what is this guy's exaltation? I'll contend that those who are lowly are often just as susceptible to boasting in their status just as much as a rich brother. It's so easy to fall into self-pity or to adopt a woe-is-me attitude even when the suffering is so great and so real. And it's especially easy to masquerade our lowliness and make it look like holiness. Being righteous is not the removal of all things temporary, but rather righteousness is having a heart that can be removed with all things temporary and not miss a beat. God doesn't ask you to be poor in your bank account, but rather to be poor in spirit. Therefore, James tells his lowly brother, hey, don't boast in your lowliness, but boast in the fact that one day you will be exalted because you are an adopted child of the king. 
James then turns his attention to the rich brother. And he tells this guy, in contrast to the lowly brother, he says, hey, boast in your humiliation. Now what, what does that mean? One commentator says this. He says, it would seem here that to boast in humiliation, or rather to be made low, is to find something of incomparably greater value than wealth. Something that by its greatness makes him feel very small. As to be disillusioned to his old ground of glorying, that he attains a basis for a better glory. So James exhorts this, this rich brother, when faced with trials, hey, don't boast in your old glory or your, your wealth, but boast in a greater glory, that he, like the lowly brother, is an adopted child of the king, a status that no man can attain, but has to be given to him from above. As we see, James goes on to warn this rich brother that if his life's pursuits remain fixed on achieving status and wealth on this earth, he'll be just like a wilting flower, which is there one day and gone another. And unless we ourselves recognize the transience of this life and the potential suddenness of its end, and unless we live each moment for Christ, we, wish, we risk quietly worshiping the world and not persevering to the end. Earthly security is not an indicator for eternal security. So if you face trials and begin to look for comfort and joy in the things of this world, you may, you may find temporary relief. You may be, even to, uh, may be, able, to, you, to be able to avoid trials um, by distracting yourself with the pleasures of this world. But when the sun of righteousness rises you, along with the grass, will wither under his scorching heat of judgment. So then, brothers and sisters, hear this from Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you want to consider trials in this life as joy, you must resolve yourself to boast in nothing but Christ and Him crucified, your greater glory. So to recap, people who count trials as joy possess faith in Jesus Christ. They know their trials are not meaningless, They allow God's work to be completed. They ask God for help. They boast in their future glory rather than their present glory. And finally, people who count trials as joy love God and endure to the end. Look at verses 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. really want to illustrate this last point uh, with a story. Um, just a few days ago, I called my dad to ask him how my grandpa was doing. My grandpa had recently been taken to the hospital because of complications with uh, his breathing. Now, my grandpa is now 96, and so he's seen a lot of life, uh, but it's great because he's still sharp as a tack, got a great sense of humor, and at this point, it still lived on his own. But any trip to the hospital at his age uh, is a serious one. In addition to this complication, 
my grandpa, he's dealt with arthritis in his hands for, for, really, for, for years uh, to the point where he really can't barely hold uh, a fork anymore. And he's had really bad uh, knee pain to the point where he's limping around and it's really hard for him uh, to walk. And this trip in the hospital really could mean that he's, um, he's not going to be able to live on his own anymore. Yeah, when my dad came to go see my grandpa, he didn't find him in, in poor spirits, but rather he, he found my grandpa in his hospital bed just singing, singing hymns and telling the nurses about Jesus. Never during this visit did he hear a word of complaining or grumbling, even though you'd expect uh, that this guy had something probably to complain or grumble about. Yet all my grandpa could do was sing and tell the nurses about Jesus. This was not fake joy. This, this was a complete joy that no sickness, not even the face of death, could take away from him. My grandpa could sing and have joy in his hospital bed because he knows that nothing that the Lord puts in his life is meaningless. He can have joy because he can recall God's grace and his mercy upon our family for generations after generation. He can have joy because he has seen prayer after prayer answered by God. He can have joy because he knows that God has given the eyes to see what really lasts in this life. He can have joy because he knows that soon will come a day that he will finally get to see Jesus, the one he has loved for all these years and the one who has kept him faithful to the end. He will have fought the good fight. He will have finished the race. He will have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for him a crown of life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to him on that day. And not only to him, but to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Lord, I know that many in this congregation are facing trials of many kinds. Lord, I ask this time, would you draw near to them and comfort them with your word and with your spirit? Lord, give them wisdom in their time of need and faith to keep asking for help. Lord, thank you that the testing of our faith is not meaningless. We ask for strength to persevere, grace to pass the test, and a heart that will love you to the end. In Jesus' most matchless name we pray. Amen.